first of all, how did this? Uh, I always ask this to my guests, but did you ever have a sighting, either as a kid or as an adult, that triggered all of this for you? Like, what started this whole thing for for you? No, I never have. Uh, rather unfortunately, I'm kind of envious of people who have. Um, no, I've never seen weird lights or weird craft or or anything. Um, as far as like the physical reality of this, there's there's jack all. Um, with that said, I mean, I guess it's kind of nice in a way too because I feel like it's helped keep me grounded. I'm not just trying to explain this experience I had, but really try to get at the matter more objectively. Um, so, yeah, even though I'm somewhat bitter about never having seen anything, it's still it's still uh, I, I think good for the approach, the overall method with which I'm going about investigating it. So no, I hope to someday. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't know. Time will tell, I guess. Jacques Vallée sort of explained it well in one of his books that, uh, you know, you got people that are astrophysicists and they're not near planets. They don't go out in space. Everything's done from afar and right. theorized and stuff like that. And that's the same thing with this field. You know, we're not, there's, it's so hard to get close to it, but there's enough information that we can at least start making base assumption, I guess, on, on what we're dealing with. Oh, I was just going to say, it helps too that there's more validity now surrounding the subject um, since the Pentagon, the DODs started to acknowledge that this is happening and these things, even though they're unidentified, certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to identify them, but there's something happening. And now that we have that as the basis for uh, an investigation, it, it, right. it, before, I feel like even you know three years ago, it's like, well, that's all made up. That's foo-foo shit that isn't even real. So why are you wasting your time on it? But now it's like, there's some actual uh, reason to be studying this. And uh, it's not just about, is this real? Now it's about what are these things? Who's inside? Where, when did they come from? Um, so I think, you know, if, if we can get past the stigma, we should hopefully right. see more researchers coming into this field and, and starting to, to look at it in, in realistic terms. But I think that stigma is still a big roadblock, unfortunately. Yeah, but having like uh, the scientific coalition for UAP studies be a lot more vocal and active, which I heard you're uh, part of. So congratulations. Yeah, yeah, I'll be doing a presentation next next month, I think. Was it the one coming up in June, like June fifth, June sixth? Yeah, that's it. It's early June. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, we've got the rehearsal on Tuesday this week. Cool. Yeah. No, they they they're great. Uh, Rich Hoffman, Robert Powell. All those guys are, uh, they're doing an awesome job and yeah, it's, it's important, you know, and, and there's, they're getting more airtime getting out there and, and adding more credibility to this area of study as well. So yeah, we're, we're lucky, uh, the SU exists and that they're so motivated and have been for so long. Yeah. It's, I've had a few members already on and like I said, my, my, my podcast is always open to them because, uh, or the organization, just because it's, or the coalition, I should say. Organization sounds so sinister, doesn't it? The organization. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say that. But uh, yeah, it's always open to them because anything pops up, I want them to have a place that they can talk or say something right away if, if needs to, right? Not saying that they can't do that on their own, but 
uh, you know, just have that available for right, them. Absolutely. Talking about your research again, um, when did this idea for this book come about, or the idea for the theory uh, that you have? And then you can explain to the listener what that theory is, just for the the people that haven't heard it yet. Um, and then we'll get into it, of course, um, and talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, well, I was actually eight years old, um, and I, I I remember it still very vividly. It's it's funny having kids now. I try to get a sense of what they remember, how much they remember about things, because the farther back you go, you just kind of fleeting memories of a vacation or something like that. But by by age eight, it seems like six to eight, you start to really kind of form long-lasting memories. But this one was certainly impactful. Um, I just I remember walking into the living room at the house I grew up in before my folks split, at least, and... Um, Uh, Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, was up on the out, I assume, as more of a conversation piece. Um, and I, I remember looking up at it and having this mental image in my head with uh, an early hominin, kind of a chimpanzee-like form, a modern human in the middle, and then that alien form on the right side, which have sort of encapsulated into a, a logo uh, in publishing the book. But um, no, I just, it, it sort of indicated some kind of connection, what what we would call a phylogenetic connection, it made me wonder if maybe these aliens, as they're described, are just us from the future coming back to study their own past. So um, after publishing the book, I found out that quite a lot of other people in various uh, fields and in media and other places have also had the same idea and have been getting getting it out there in various forms. So it's been really good to see. But um, yeah, no, I was, I was just a, a wee lad and um, just kind of had that little vision and a question mark next to it and uh, spent quite a bit of time throughout my college career and uh, grad school and then obviously more recently in researching the book, uh, really pursuing that, seeing if there could be some legitimacy to that idea that these uh Extraterrestrials or just extra nice. tempestrials, as nice. I call them. That's going to be a tattoo slogan right there, I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd also like to point out, though, that I don't see them as being mutually exclusive. But if we can also consider this thing, or you know, because because it's just it, it's something that's so prominent in our culture that we just say extraterrestrial. You watch anything on TV about UFOs. And they, the default is extraterrestrials. What if they're extraterrestrials? But and we should be talking about other options too. This this extratempestrial, interdimensional, which is more or less the same thing. If we're talking about humans, just from a different world line, as opposed to a different point in the future and, and the block time model, uh, ultra terrestrials and and all of the other forms of simulation hypothesis. So I feel like it's all on the table. Um, but I do, I do think that this time-traveling humans model helps explain a lot of the nuances of this phenomenon. And also, like, sort of like the hands-off, you know, get, dodge everything, or being very hands-off. Again, like, and everybody's forgetting all the experiences and all that. Seems like they're just trying to mitigate their uh, whatever damages they might be causing to the species. I liked what you explained about them being able to travel um, through the past, because you were mentioning about how light 
if you just reverse light and follow its source, and if you had the ability to do that, you could travel back through time. Because the time theory or the ability to be able to travel through time has always been debated. But I like that theory that if um, you're able to manipulate light, you might be able to manipulate time as well. Mm -hmm. And that's like a theory of kind of like what you're, you're, you're basing this off of, like their ability to manipulate that much um, in the technological advancement, you mean? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not a physicist. I, I studied physics and astronomy as an undergraduate uh, as my major early on. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not putting out formulas for how exactly this is going to work. But what I do in the book is show, really since Einstein's publication of his 1915 paper on uh, general relativity, how the solutions to the field equations he published in association with those consistently demonstrate how we can create closed time-like curves and largely through bending light cones toward the past. And I think that's what you were kind of touching on that that we're not really reversing light per se in a very bad in a very bad way <laughs> no no it was, it was it was good um but yeah so so we have this world line where we're moving forward in our own reference frame and a good way of thinking of a light cone is if you turn on a flashlight it creates this beam of light that comes out so anything within the universe, the known universe that's possible must exist within the boundaries of that light cone because nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So in order to go into the past, you have to reorient those light cones toward the past. And that's what creates these closed time light curves. And and many of these solutions, since since lens and theoring uh, with um, frame dragging, a good example is if you put a bowling ball in molasses and spin it, it's also spinning that molasses because space and time are moving in association with it. So uh, the common theme throughout, uh, Van Stockham in the 30s, the Godel model, uh, Frank Tipler and the Tipler cylinders was one of the first ones in the 70s that showed that you can create this same close like close time like curve, you can create the same effect of space-time warpage with uh, a, a, a disk which is exactly what we see in most of these cases of UFOs is a rotating, highly electromagnetic disk. In most cases, there's triangles and, and other forms too. But um, so, yeah, it kind of indicates that maybe these craft are the time machine themselves since they seem to have the same form that we would expect of something that has the function of creating closed timelike curves and, and returning to the past. So inside that craft, you're still moving forward in your local reference frame, you don't feel like time's going backward. You don't see yourself getting younger, eggs coming up onto the counter and reforming if they broke on the floor. But you're still moving forward in your local right. reference frame, but you're moving into the global past. So you're traveling backward in time to a previous point in space-time uh, while still moving forward locally. So um, it's pretty... If it can happen and we continue to advance our technology and our knowledge of physics and astronomy and everything that it would take in order to do this, it's very likely that we will. Uh, if there's nothing in the laws of physics that prohibits it, there's a very good chance we'll eventually figure out how to do it. And the fact that these alien beings are so often reported, most commonly reported to be human and not just humanoid or human-like, but physical humans, 
uh, and then followed by the tall grays and the short grays indicates that they're just us and they've cracked the code of time travel. The theory of, you know, uh, how we became bipeds. I was always wondering, uh, did we lose our tail at that point, the same, same time we started walking on two feet? Like, at what point in time did our more primitive sense, uh, or more selves, I should say, not sense, um, evolve to be bipeds? Because these things are bipeds as well. Um, and, you know, you were mentioning different forms and, and different shapes. They're all bipeds and they're always, right. they always Important. have fingers and arms. There's nothing out of the box really, uh, except just some of their facial features that are quite different. So is that something that we, you know, might be common throughout the universe as well? Like not just in humans, but like bipeds could be something that is, is common throughout, um, that if they are extraterrestrials, is that a possibility that bipeds is just a natural form of evolution of something that's intelligent? Well, we like to pretend like it is because it's what we do. Um, but we are actually extremely unique on this planet. Uh, we're the only habitually bipedal primate, and we're also the only habitually bipedal mammal. Others will sit up on their legs to eat, beavers and squirrels and things like that. But we're the only mammal on this planet that does it. And the, a big reason for that is because it's hard. We still suffer from a number of problems with our, our legs, our blood pressure, pumping blood back up, fainting, uh, varicose veins, hemorrhoids, hernias, um, blown out knees, back problems, neck problems. We're, we're not so that's all caused from walking like yeah, upright? that's that's a direct result of our bipedalism on a planet with gravity of 9.8 meters per second squared and what's important is that based on data from the and I talk about this in my SCU presentation a little bit and I think I touch on it in the contact in the desert presentation later ne next month as well that based on data from the planetary habitability uh, laboratory at the University of uh, Puerto Rico and Arecibo, the um, the number of planets that have been identified that are the same size as Earth or smaller is only 2.2%. So what that means is if we already struggle with bipedalism here on a relatively small planet, and most of these other planets that have been found uh, with the Arecibo observatory and part of the Kepler mission and, and others, if if 98% of them are bigger, we're not going to find bipeds on those planets. I mean, it's possible right. that one is, you know, a smaller planet somewhere and bipedalism developed there. If it's too much smaller, you know, maybe all of the organisms fly or, or swim as uh, some other means. So, no, it's ridiculous to assume that any life form will just be driven toward our exact form, and even beyond bipedalism, it is the trait that defines the hominin lineage, but they, they also have five fingers on their hands. They're, they're, they have pentadactyly, they're tetrapods, they have bilateral symmetry. There's all of these other traits that we share with them. But to me, bipedalism is really kind of the nail in the coffin. And uh, to your question about tails, we actually lost that much earlier. Uh, one of okay. the early traits that defined the... the um, hominoid, our particular blade, our, our tailless relatives, which includes the gibbons, the gorillas, the both forms of chimpanzees and the orangutans, that actually goes back about 20 million years. So they all are tailless. It's what we call a, a unique derived characteristic of hominoids. Or, and right. So the fact that we don't have that, they don't have that means that 
our common ancestor also didn't. So we lost that about 20 million years ago. But bipedalism is much more recent. And as I said, we're the only ones. That's about six, uh, possibly as early as eight million years ago. And we stood upright. Uh, chimps, bonobo chimps did not. And we went on to uh, invent things as a result of that. Yeah, you had also mentioned that because we started walking upright, we had to develop the ability to look down and that allowed the brain or the cranium to extend as well, gave us, given us more room for a brain. If I'm, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm paraphrasing you here, yeah, I'm paraphrasing you here. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not butchering it too bad, but uh, it's oh. you know that's the part that I really liked was the fact that you know maybe because of that, because we start walking upright, like you mentioned, we started using tools, got smarter and smarter because we had the brain capacity i guess but is that a unique trait then as far as we understand of of what could be out there that this is not it is it is yeah it's uh yeah yeah on this planet of course we don't know anything about other planets yet um but you know at at some point we might but yeah just on the planet the vast diversity of life that exists on earth are our cranial capacity relative to our body size, what we call the encephalization quotient, is astronomical. It's ridiculously high compared to other species. And, and part of that can be explained by standing upright, heads rotating down, as you mentioned, what we call cranial flexing, where the anterior cranial base in the front, right above our eyes, and the posterior cranial base in the back, where the foramen magnum goes, the big hole in the bottom of our skulls that our spinal cord passes through. As that flexes and those move down and toward each other, it opens up more space in the calvarium, the upper part of our skull. And, and that's not the only thing, but it, it may have been an important precursor because you need space for this stuff with, with anything, any organism, any machine as well, uh, looking at cars, trucks. It's all just a reorganization of space. And throughout hominin evolution, having that space in our skulls to grow bigger brains and then this feedback loop with our culture where we started to select for greater intelligence and more forward thinking and uh, just having social situations that applied other pressures that allowed us to evolve our intellect more. All of these things contributed to our uniqueness. You don't see giraffes and hippos sitting around having conversations like this across the internet. We're really unique and a big part of that is the cranial flexing, the, the runaway brain, the feedback loop, but also just our hands, having the ability to use our hands because we are bipedal and we're not using them for locomotion anymore, allows us to build things and to create things and make tools and build fire, and all of these other things that have contributed to our success as a species as well. So if that leads us, or at least leads us into the conversation of like these grays that are told to have almost emaciated bodies in these big heads. Um, if that is us in the future, what would have caused that sort of muscular atrophy? Would it just be the fact that we've had so much technology that the use of doing anything is just not required? So we just sort of shrunk over time? Or do you have a theory on, on what happens there? Yeah, I mean, I don't really get into that too much in the book just because um, it, there, nobody can know. Like we can look at what factors contributed to our current morphological form, but to extrapolate beyond that is problematic for a number of reasons. But 
with that said, if these are, in fact, our distant human descendants and we can see their physical form, then we can kind of jump ahead a little bit and speculate with some level of knowledge or awareness about what may have happened. Um, you know, it, there's still a lot of things that could change, could take place. We could live in space. We could live on Mars. Uh, that would obviously subject us to a number of different environments that could create changes in our physiological form. But even beyond that, just looking at the last six million years of human evolution, if those same trends continue, and this was kind of the main focus for the book, if these same trends continue, regardless of what happens between now and whatever point in the future or different points in the future they're coming back from, we're already likely to look like that. We're likely to have bigger, more rounded skulls, smaller faces, smaller teeth, bigger eyes, all of these same trends that have dominated human evolution, especially in our cranial facial morphology, which is more recent. We became bipedal six million years ago, but really it wasn't until about 800,000 years ago that we had fully modern postcranial anatomy. From our neck down, everything was solidly modern. And that's when our faces and our crania really started to take off. So most of what makes us modern is relatively recent, and especially in even the last 200,000 years since we became anatomically modern Homo sapiens sapiens, what defines us as our current species is what we call neurocranial globularity, a big round skull and a retracted face to the extent that we have a chin or a mental eminence, as it's called. That's one of the traits that defines us as modern humans. So really all of these things have been happening in an accelerated way, but also more recently. And if that acceleration continues, you know, we, may, we might not be looking at that long before we start to resemble these grays, regardless of where we live or what types of environments we're subjected to, just simply because of the same long history of these changes taking place right. in our anatomy. And then over time, you know, we would look quite different where you can tell apart from male to female. I think we'd probably just eventually all just meld in because these entities seem to be that way that you could tell that like you know, people say I could tell there was a female or I could tell there was a male, but you couldn't define it. Like there was nothing about them that would that would give you that impression. Uh, I'm pretty sure Antonio Vias Boas could tell. I don't know if you're familiar with that case, but he got it on with one of them, and she was definitely female, and he was definitely male. So, yeah, she had blonde hair, reddish blonde hair, I think is how he described it. But, um, yeah, he even talked about her bush a little bit, which was kind of weird. Um, the carpet matched the drape, so to speak. But it's the devil's in the details, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of helps you think he wasn't making it up, that he was even given details like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, there does seem to be some, uh, I don't know, just shift toward gender neutral traits. Um, I, I don't know how long that would take. That that could be an aspect of our reduced sperm count, decreasing fertility rates, more difficulties with reproduction in general. Um, we, we may start using external uteruses and things to gestate our babies. Who knows? A lot of those have been described in various cases as well. Just these walls of incubating human or human alien hybrid babies, whatever you want to call them. But right. I mean, to what extent can we really 
I, I don't think we should put all of our chips on that card, but we should definitely, uh, that was a mixed metaphor. I don't play poker. You can tell, um, but we should definitely acknowledge them. And, and, and when something consider these accounts, um, but I don't think that should be an entire basis for form forming hypotheses or really trying to well, deduce what exactly is going on. Um, I know even like today's age, they're saying that uh, men's testosterone is dropping quite a bit, that men aren't as virile or as, as uh, sexually active as we were back in the 80s or 90s, that there tends to be a, a less uh, yeah. mating amongst uh, the younger people. So I thought, okay, I could... Less interest. In yeah, that's, that's not too good for the human population. Or it might be. We might decrease our numbers. Who knows? Fewer bar fights, too, probably. Yeah, well, less testosterone. Yeah, exactly. Less guys uh, caring about impressing the girls by doing something stupid or violent, which is, tends yeah. to be the case. I in feel like, yeah, I feel like we can kind of look to Japan, too, as a, a potential guide for the future of all of humans they've they've kind of uh moved away from uh marriage and and there's just there's less interest in in dating and getting married and having kids and we see the fertility rates dropped replacement rate yeah. has dropped below two in most parts of the world even less developed countries it's just teetering right on the edge of that i think the u.s is still right above two but we've gotten really close to it as well so yeah, clearly there's less focus, and, and it, it's good in a lot of ways. It, it coincides with more opportunities for women in the workplace and more equality in politics and, and the economic sphere as well. So it's a sign of progress, but yeah, what does that mean for the long term of the human future if, if we're all just kind of giving up on making babies and reproducing, which seems weird because that's the only reason we're here. That's the only reason anything is here right now is they kept doing that. But because we're intuitive, innovative, we'll probably figure out a way to continue that. And it could help explain many aspects of why they're so focused on gametes and fetuses and extracting right. sperm from men and, and eggs from females is that they need it. It's not that they're doing something to us. They're probably doing it for themselves and potentially to help continue humans into the even more distant future. Who knows? And, and it's likely that we'll reach a point where we relax any selective pressure pain that same size and shape of the birth canal in women simply because all of our birth takes place through cesarean section or possibly, as I mentioned, the... Um, external gestation having an incubation system that takes the place of internal gestation so uh and, and that's not just wild speculation that's based on current trends we give birth to underdeveloped young what we call altricial young it's one of the only ways we can get our babies out uh, there's also a metopic suture an extra suture in the forehead we have the fontanelle so we can become more cone-headed as we squeeze the birth canal but yeah it's it's been a big problem it's still a big problem upwards of 30 percent of mothers in pre-industrial mm. countries die during childbirth which is a huge number that indicates a very strong selective pressure to either modify the birth canal or modify the baby uh, so that they can get out alive and without killing uh, both the mother and the offspring or one or the other so yeah if, if we 
to start taking our babies out through cesarean section, it changes that whole relationship, which we've been evolving to for, for you know millions of years. Yeah, and it's often like again because I go back to the hybrid scenarios that people have mentioned, and when they say that they take the embryos about three months, uh, you know, in, and usually they, you know, you could tell that it's not human just by this. I don't know, they know the size of the head. Usually all embryos are, but there's something specific about these that they know that it's not human. Um, it's either, do you think there's, there'd be a benefit to crossbreeding um, if, if this animals or, or species are, are quite similar? Would there be an advantage in that to be able to get, let's say these entities get the human characteristics, maybe emotions and, and things like that? Like, is it possible that some entities are doing that Um and again, I'm not saying that you would know the answer to that, but would it be beneficial to a species to eventually start gaining different uh, attributes or characteristics from um, other entities that might have an advantage? Yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to run on four legs like a horse. I think that would be awesome. Um, that'd be that'd be pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, or I mean, or strong like a bear. Yeah, strong yeah. like a bear. Any any one of those. One thing I would mention though is that if they are creating these babies, by definition, we are the same species. The way we define a right. biological species based on the biological definition of species, biological species concept, is that if two organisms can reproduce and produce viable offspring, then they are considered the same species. So it's difficult for me to say that these entities that are making babies with us that look like us and that look like them aren't the same species. To me, that's one of the main things that right. indicates their humanness because if they can reproduce with us, that by definition means they are homo sapiens sapiens in the same way that we are. And obviously with an advanced species uh, of any variety, you would expect them to have figured out you know, any aspect of, of gene manipulation, but who knows if an extraterrestrial race would even have DNA. We just happen to end up with this guanine, cytosine, adenine, thymine pairing system, these four base pairs and these nucleotides, but any other civilization might have something completely different. So to think that we could even hybridize our coding systems from different planets seems uh, really improbable. But the fact that they already look so much like us, they're reproducing these babies, that's something you can do through time. If you went back in time and got it on with somebody 100 years ago, yeah, you're going to be able to make a baby. Uh, you go back 200,000 years ago, even a million years ago, there's still a good chance that you could procreate with that individual and have a viable offspring, an offspring that's able to reproduce itself. So it, it just seems more logical in the context of this hybridization that they're, they're, they are us and they have the same genetic coding system that we have and there seemed to be a middle step too because it's taken the sperm from the men and after that a fertilization of the female and then three months later a revisit to take out the uh, embryo but there's that in-between step between where they grab you know um, the semen from the men to when the female gets impregnated so at that point something must be taking place it must be doing something 
I'd like to think that uh, the black eyes are caused because of our, uh, you know, if we're going along the theory that you have from cell phones and just at nighttime, just looking at the cell phones all the time. But uh, do you have a theory on what's with the black eyes? Yeah, I think it's contact lenses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually wrote a little bit about that in my book. And, and I know the alien autopsy was faked. It was like uh, staged... Uh, performance mm -hmm. but uh, it was allegedly based on a real event and a real video that did exist um and was filmed around the time of roswell but what's interesting about that video and i got flack for talking about it even though i clearly acknowledged in the book that it is a fake video what's interesting is you wouldn't expect them to make such a human-looking individual. If they can just create whatever alien they want for this, you would expect them to do that. But this individual is very clearly human in every sense, just with more derived traits, the bigger head, smaller face, larger eyes, etc. You know, smaller, more pedomorphic body is very clearly observable in that. So it indicates that, to me at least, it was based on something real. Um, the other thing is that in this video, you can see them take off a black lens from the eye. And below that lens is a very human-looking eyeball that's just larger than our own and kind of wraps around kind of like a East Asian ocular configuration. So again, why would they do that if it wasn't based on something? It's a very specific thing that also seems to match up with the, the black eye characteristics that are so commonly described in these reports with what I consider to be more distant future human descendants, the ones that aren't just human. Because again, a lot of these are describing humans. Right. Exactly like us who speak vocally, some speak telepathically, probably again more distant, but many speak using vocalized speech in the exact same way that we do. So uh, if we're talking about these more distant versions in the context of what I refer to as temporal ancestry in the book, then, you, yeah, you would expect their eyes not just to be larger, but in the context of my main area of research, before I got into all this UFO stuff, uh, I researched juvenile onset myopia, astigmatism, and just the deterioration in human vision in general. It's a big part of my dissertation research and a lot of the articles I've published um, in vision journals and also anthropological journals, our, our eyes are getting bad. And you see this a lot. You see it happening at an increased rate in, in East Asian populations who have more of these same craniofacial characteristics that you see in these gray alien beings. Mm. So it would make sense that their eyes are just bad. They, I wear contacts. My vision's horrible, about negative five diopters in both oh, eyes. Wow. Uh, it makes sense that they would need that to see in the same way that we do. Right. Um, who knows what the black is? You know, maybe it's to try to hide their humanness. Who knows? Because the, the eyes are the windows to the soul. If you see somebody's eyes, you, you can instantly see their humanness. And that's what's interesting about that uh, Santilli video, the, the autopsy video, is that as soon as they take those off, you feel like you're looking at a human. Yeah like a kid almost right because it just looks like a kid that's yeah, yeah that's what it looks like exactly yeah. a pedomorphic kid because um even i was talking to uh terry lovelace earlier today 
and he has an experience, and he was talking about when he was looking out the tent, and of course they were outside the tent. Um, to him, he thought they were kids at first. And he looked at his friend. He, the, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, he's like, dude, what is that? Toby. That's that's messed up. Like, you know, because at first you just dismiss it. Like, oh, it's just a bunch of kids. And then when his friend's like, no, no, they, they took us. Don't you remember? <laughs> like, just how fast his memory yeah. went to like, oh, oh, it's just kids outside, you know, from something so traumatic like that. That that just blows my mind. Like, when something like that, I, and I get to hear it from the yeah. person. It's like... And and that's that's not screen memories. No, either. that is pure. I remember. Like they, he had screen memories for a while. Yeah, and a lot of people do, but that's just. Yeah, he had the monkeys. Um, for for Whitley Strieber, it was owls. I've read a number of cases with uh, cartoon characters, Disney characters, but no, he he straight up saw kids running around out in this field under this craft, getting beamed up into it, and that's a. Yeah, that's what they look like. And yeah. and that, again, is a very good indication that they're just humans from the future because this other main trend is the shift toward the retention of juvenilized traits, what we call pedomorphosis. It's oh, part wow. of neoteny, just a change in the rate and timing of growth and development. And, and you can see it happen now. Look at pictures of men and women from even 100 years ago, 150 years ago. The women look like men, and the men look like really manly men right but we shifted toward <laughs> more feminized characteristics yeah exactly and that's just an aspect of this neoteny process this pedomorphosis and i talk about that a lot in the book as did um uh dr michael d swords in a mufon symposium presentation he gave in 1985 talking about this the the, the pedomorphosis this future human hypothesis uh actually Rob. Robert Powell from the SCU sent me these papers last year, and I was like, wow, he, he's describing almost the exact same thing I described in my book. He was more critical of this time travel hypothesis, but really, like, he could see that same thing that I saw, that, that right. pedomorphosis, the, the, the childlike characteristics in these beings as an aspect of continued human evolution. It, it just, it makes sense. Yeah, and if we sort of reverse ourselves to that point where then, you know, our adult selves never really comes to fruition. Making kids goes out the window, you know, at that point. I mean, the reproductive system, we eventually, uh, you know, not developed if that's what we're chasing. And it seems to be that way. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari and uh, his theories on where we're going as a species as well is quite interesting. And he's thought it through, too, as well. Like, when you listen to it, you're like, oh, yeah. You know, the great divide between the rich and the poor and then the trying to keep youth going to a point mm -hmm. where we obsess with it and uh, it becomes a whole industry in of itself, right? I could see that. I could see what you mean yeah, by uh, we kind of screw ourselves or shoot ourselves in the foot by chasing this, right? Yeah, and you got to also wonder about CRISPR and gene editing you know, what if we start to try to cure disease or stop childhood cancer or any heritable congenital defects that we have? There, there's risks involved in that. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Right. Like really mess up. Targeting one gene, but what if it... Yeah, what if it goes somewhere else? What if it goes to your reproductive organs, which has happened before and then it becomes a heritable trait and you're passing down this new gene sequence that's never existed before and trying to fix something else so it, it's possible that we could 
really screw things up from trying to uh, trying to fix something too, sort of Sod's law or Murphy's law, where you you think you're doing something good and then something horrible goes wrong, and uh, yeah, maybe that affects our reproduction as well. There's there, there's a lot of cultural things in addition to our biological that could impact the future. Yeah, no, you're um you're doing that uh, contact in the desert and also obviously the online um, session as well. What day is that specifically? Um, contact in the desert. I don't know if they have, I don't know if they have the actual uh, slots for that one yet, but I'll be doing both a, a lecture and a workshop for that one. Um, so yeah, looking forward to both of them. Obviously, you know, it's better to go to these places and, interact and have a beer and really try to pick apart different things but uh it's great that they're doing it and i think this format and the way that they're doing it is going to work really well so it seems that things are getting back to normal so hopefully by next year we can all reconverge in these different places yeah um hopefully canada's still pretty uptight about it i think we're going the wrong way about this whole pandemic personally uh, but things look like they're going back to normal slowly but surely. And I, I do look forward to some sort of normality. But, um, you know, especially for the UFO community, or community because usually these these panels, these events, that's usually where we, everybody meets each other, right? So it's been quite hard on everybody to... Uh, good for podcasts, but hard on the morale, for sure, for people. Um, where can... Uh, do you have any books up in the works as well, Mike? Or is that still sort of pending? Book number two. Well, I'm actually, yeah, working on book number three, too. Uh, but no, I only have one out so far. Um, Identified Flying Objects. I published that one in 2019, so just over two years ago now. And uh, yeah, I've got a new one. I, I'm hoping to get out by the end of the year. It'll most likely be next year. Um, but kind of approaches this extra tempestrial model from a different standpoint. Um, yeah, I recently started working on a an interesting mutes project too. I, I don't really like saying cattle mutilations because it's so many animals beyond cows as it turns out. But uh, I've been collaborating with a, a fellow Canadian. I, I, wait, I'm not Canadian. You're a fellow Canadian of yours. I'm not sure how you would say that. Fellow Canadian of yours, I guess. But uh, I'm, I'm a Canadian at heart. I'm only right across the border, so... Uh, we're, we're pretty close. Um, but no, he's on the other side over in Nova Scotia. Um, but we've been working on this mutes project over the last, uh, I don't know, four or five months or so. And, um, yeah, that'll probably be book three if we can, uh, if everything pans out the way, um, the way we're planning. But yeah, no, it's just, it's really fun to research this stuff and it, especially the, the, really odd aspects of it and i would certainly put mutilations up there as one of the oddest aspects of this phenomenon um but yeah it's been fun book book two is 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 on the way um probably about six to nine months or so For just sure. getting a little yeah. book baby as we speak i guess i appreciate uh your time on this uh and the work that you've done on this too. This is a different spin that we haven't covered on the podcast yet. Oh, cool. We yeah, we covered uh, the religious aspect of things. We uh, the uh, 
entities from another location trying to interact with us, but never specifically this subject. So this is uh, quite new. And I, I'm, I'm happy that we actually got uh, around to doing this. Uh, so I thank you very much for coming on UAP Studies, my man. Yeah, me too. I appreciate you having me on.